0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello. Thank you for joining us for the Friday, June 2nd, 2023 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, why our allergies are getting worse and what to do about it from NPR News. And... Men, you should be sitting down to pee for your health, from HuffPost. Plus, if you're on these medications, you seriously need extra sun cream, from HuffPost, and more, time permitting. Here's our first report. Why Our Allergies Are Getting Worse and What to Do About It, by Dave Davies, from NPR News. If it seems like your seasonal allergies are getting worse over time, you're probably not wrong. Estimates are that 30 to 40 percent of the world's population now have some form of allergy, and medical anthropologist Teresa McPhail says allergic reactions, including everything from hay fever to eczema and asthma, are growing in the U.S. and around the world. McPhail is an associate professor of science and technology studies at Stevens Institute of Technology. In her new book, Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World, she explores some of the theories behind the rise in allergies, including the theory that excessive emphasis on hygiene, and perhaps even showering, can contribute to the development of sensitivities. You've probably heard that we don't let kids eat enough dirt. They don't play in enough dirt. They're not around enough germs, she says. We have seen that people who send their children to daycare centers, there's something about being in a daycare center that is also protective, she says. Other explanations for the increase in allergic reactions include the shift in our diets over the years toward more processed foods and less fiber, which affects our microbiomes. McPhail also posits a link between allergies and a rise in exposure to environmental toxins, which could reduce the skin's ability to ward off potential allergens. McPhail's interest in allergies is personal. In August 1996, her father was riding in a car in rural New Hampshire when a bee flew into his open window and stung him on the neck, triggering an allergic reaction. Before long, my father's cells were just emitting histamine, McPhail says. My dad started to have trouble breathing. His neck started to swell up. Within 30 minutes, he was dead on arrival at the hospital, she says. McPhail says what happened to her dad is an example just how extreme the body's reaction to an allergen can be. She likens immune cells to bouncers or curators whose job it is to scan foreign objects, such as tree pollen or bee venom, and make split-second decisions about whether or not that thing is okay, she says. While most allergic reactions are not deadly, McPhail says that regardless of how mild or severe an allergy is, it inevitably impacts a person's quality of life. That might mean spending a lot of money on treatments, such as air purifiers or antihistamines or allergy-free foods, or just simply not feeling well. Most people with mild allergies don't sleep well, so their sleep is affected, which means they're not as productive, she says. Their mental health suffers, like most people with a moderate allergy have some form of depression or anxiety. We can say that's correlation and not causation, but if you're constantly lacking sleep and you're constantly not feeling your best, it takes a toll after a certain amount of time, she says. T-cells are the police officers of our body. They're constantly circulating and finding things in our body that shouldn't be there. So if a T-cell comes into contact with an oak pollen, say, and it says, I don't like the looks of this, it's got to go. It gives that information to a class of cells called B-cells. Think of them as nightclub managers in your body, on the street that the T-cell is patrolling. And he shows a picture of this oak pollen and says, Hey, I really don't like this guy. If you see him, let me know. Let's contact some people. We've got to get rid of it. And so these B-cells, produce cells called IgE or little proteins, Y-shaped proteins, and those are like the bouncers. But every IgE is unique to the perp. So at the nightclub entrance, you've got a bouncer ready to spot oak pollen, but you've got 50 bouncers out the door all looking for specific things. And so when they see it or something similar to it, they send out the signal. They alert all of the other immune cells that something's up. you got to come and take care of this guy. So that's basically going on in your body all the time. This is what MacPhail says on the hypothesis that hygiene and allergies are connected. This British researcher, David P. Strachan, did a metadata study. So he kind of looked at all the factors involved in developing an allergy. What he found was that in families that had multiple children, the youngest children had much lower rates of allergic disease. And so he posited that that was probably because they had older siblings who got sick a lot. And so they would bring home all of these bacteria and viruses, and the littlest ones would be exposed to a whole bevy of things that maybe the eldest didn't have the same exposure to. There was something about being the youngest that was protective. And it's probably the same theory that you're just getting exposed to more germs on a day-to-day basis and that, at a young age, that's actually helpful because it helps to train your immune system so it's not going to be oversensitive when the kid gets a little bit older. On studies that show early exposure help with tolerance. By around age three, your immune system is kind of set up, and it's very hard to change it after that point. But it's very malleable before that point, which is why early exposures to things seem to be so protective. The landmark studies that support the hygiene hypothesis were done actually in Switzerland and Germany, where they studied children who were regularly exposed to dust in animal barns. And it's interesting because the animals seem to be a key component. So if you're living on a farm with livestock, and you're a baby, and you're being carried by your mom in and out of this barn where there are pigs and cows and ducks and dogs and whatever, you tend to have very low rates of sensitization and allergic response in those adults once they grow up. It could be the allergens in the air mixed with certain types of bacteria that would be in a barn. But the animals do seem key. And I will say that if you grow up with a dog in particular, dogs seem to be protective, she says. So people who grow up in a household with a dog also tend to have a slightly lower rate of allergies than people who grow up in a household without pets. On exposing babies to potential food allergens. Prior to 2016, when the advice changed... We were, just as normal best practices, telling parents to not only avoid certain allergenic foods like peanuts, strawberries, eggs, milk when they were pregnant, but also to avoid giving them to their younger children until after the age of three. And it turns out that was exactly the wrong advice. And the way we figured that out is there's a researcher from Israel who actually noticed that in places that supplemented their young children's diet with peanut paste, they actually had incredibly lower rates of allergy to peanuts. And so he did a more official study and did find that the early exposure seemed to be protective. But the tricky thing is it's not protective for everyone. So if you give a six-month-old baby a trace amount of peanut butter, say, some of them will learn to tolerate it, and some of them will still react because they might already have been sensitized through their skin. And so it's a dice throw, and the best practice now is we tell them, expose the baby to a tiny amount and see what happens. But we could also be seeing an earlier reaction because they've been presensitized. So that's the best advice we can give for now, but it's not perfect advice. Here's what McPhail says on our diet's effect on our microbiome. Billions, trillions of bacteria live inside of our intestinal tract. Our guts are just replete with things that are not us, but that help break down foods and are the reason that we can eat food and turn them into nutrients and stay alive, basically. One theory about the rise of allergies is that over the last 200 years, our diets have gotten dramatically different in terms of what we eat, the types of food we eat, so more processed foods, less fresh fruit and vegetables, different foods. We cook differently, we manufacture differently, we grow differently, which is a problem for the microbiota that have co-evolved with us. So for millennia, for thousands of years, the microbiota got the same diet or a similar diet, and now suddenly they're being flooded with a lot more fats, a lot more sugars, a lot less fiber— Fiber is necessary for a lot of those good, healthy bacteria that are helping us to digest food. And so, the theory goes, without all of that, there has been a difference in the composition of what types of bacteria are thriving or what ones are accidentally being starved because they're not getting the right types of food from us anymore. And so, if you change that balance in our gut microbiome, then you're throwing off the immune system itself on how our skin acts as a defense against allergies and why showering less frequently can be a good thing. If you'd like to think of your skin as part of the immune system, you should, because it's basically the first line of defense. It's what keeps things out, mostly. And what we found is if you use harsh detergents, if you put a lot of things on your skin, you are either stripping the skin, you're killing off the good bacteria, or you're disrupting the delicate balance between fungi and bacteria on your skin, causing a huge problem. Or you're just adding more things that the immune cells in your skin have to deal with. So probably most people don't realize that there are 85,000 chemicals on the Environmental Protection Agency's Toxic Control Substances Act Watch List. That's a lot of different chemicals that we've introduced into our environment that we're inhaling or we're coming into contact with through our skin or eating. So we're just coming into contact with all of these things, and our skin is a barrier. And so one of the theories of allergy causation is the barrier hypothesis. So if you have so-called leaky skin... So if your skin is more porous or is irritated, things are more easily going to get introduced into your immune system, and possibly your immune system is going to decide that thing is not great. McPhail on House Pets Developing Allergies I think the fact that we are doing something that is also affecting our pets is the best evidence we have that we're really causing allergies, full stop there is no evidence that we have that we know of that any animal in the wild develops allergic responses. So all mammals, all animals, have immune systems, but only the ones that live with us are negatively reacting the way that we are. So in dogs, it will be a lot of scratching, a lot of itch. In cats, it can be scratching, but it can also be wheezing. A lot of cats get asthma just like we can get asthma. For birds, it's the same. It's asthma and itch. And for horses, it's asthma and itch also. McPhail says she went to Cornell to their veterinary school, and they said it's absolutely the fact that there's more allergies in pets, except that it's less diagnosed and less surveyed, so we don't have solid numbers. But they've been seeing an increase in rates, and it's becoming a larger problem. Their hypothesis is that it is directly linked to lifestyle, since our pets are living exactly like we're living, and we are also changing their food. So a lot of this is that we're producing their food exactly the way we produce our food. On municipalities planting more male trees, which increases pollen. Female trees tend to be messier, so they have seeds falling and things like that, so they're harder to clean up after. And so for years it was thought, oh well, let's just have the trees that don't have that problem, except that they're pumping out pollen to pollinate the female trees. And so you accidentally got this imbalance of pollen-producing trees. Up next, men, you should be sitting down to pee for your health. Only 24% of British men sit down to pee, according to YouGov data. Experts want that number to rise by Dana McAlpin from HuffPost. Men, grab a seat. Take a load off. No, we're not talking about having a rest on the sofa. We're talking about sitting down the next time you head to the loo for a wee. Let us explain. YouGov conducted a 13-country study on men's peeing preferences internationally, and it turns out just 24% of British men regularly partake in a sit-down wee. So what, you might ask? Well, it turns out there's actually a whole host of health benefits you could be missing out on if you choose to stand when you urinate. According to the data gathered by YouGov, British men are among the least likely to sit for a wee internationally, with 33% saying they never do so. Dr. Jesse N. Mills, associate clinical professor at the UCLA Department of Urology, previously told Thrillist that sitting down to pee could help men empty their bladders. Sitting down is a better option for men with prostate conditions or men who just can't stand up for a long time, he explained. A lot of guys sit to pee if they can't fully evacuate their bladder. When you sit down, you can use your abdominal muscles more, and you get your last few squirts out and feel like you've emptied better, he says. Scientific research backs up Mills, too. In 2014, researchers from the Department of Urology at Leiden University Medical Center discovered that sitting down to pee allowed men to empty their bladders faster and more effectively. Another pro of a sit-down pee is that you don't have to worry about getting urine on the floor. Mills said when you're sitting, you've got better aim. If you're sitting in the right place, then chances are you will get it in the right place. So grab a seat the next time nature calls. Your bladder and housemates will probably thank you for it. Up next, if you're on these medications, you seriously need extra sun cream. Take extra care this summer, your skin will thank you. By Sarah Louise Kelly from HuffPost. During these warmer days, it's important to stay protected from the sun and stay on top of your SPF applications. But if you're on certain types of medications, you're at a much higher risk of sun-induced illness and injuries. One in 10 people in the U.K. are on mental health medications. These fall under a number of different categories, including serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, tricyclic antidepressants, or TCAs, antipsychotic drugs, or ACDs, and beta blockers, which are often used to treat anxiety. All of these types of medication can make you more intolerant to increased heat and at risk of heat exhaustion and heat stroke. Why do mental health medications make people sensitive to heat? So, while for many of us, mental health medications are essential for our well-being and functioning as they provide relief from the symptoms of our conditions, they can impact our thermoregulation, the body's way of controlling its internal temperature. According to licensed psychiatrist Dr. Deborah Serrani, medications can interfere with hypothalamic set body temperature, impede thermoreceptors, which are nerve endings that detect temperature on our skin and skeletal muscles, and reduce or accelerate sweat production, she says. All mental health medications can put you at an increased risk of heat intolerance, hypertension, fainting from heat, reduced alertness in heat, and lethargy and confusion in heat. This is actually the case year-round, but it only feels more apparent in warmer months because the heat outside almost magnifies the internal heat in your body. How to cope with heat intolerance. Dr. Wendy Byrne, a psychiatrist, recommends those who are struggling with heat intolerance use high-factor sunscreen and stay out of direct sunlight, keep as cool as possible and drink plenty of water, Follow standard heat wave advice, such as keeping curtains and windows closed, wear loose, light-fitting clothing made of natural materials, such as cotton and linen, and wear a hat when outside. Avoid strenuous physical activity and alcohol, and take cool baths or showers to bring your temperature down. Speak to your doctor before coming off medication. Up next... Not all carbs are the same. Everything You Need to Know About Complex Carbohydrates by Delaney Nothaft from USA Today. Bread, pasta, potatoes, cake. Many of our favorite things are packed with a biomolecule called carbohydrates. We need them. They are what allow our bodies to produce the energy required to maintain life and do awesome things like climb mountains and run marathons. But not all carbohydrates are the same. They can be further classified as simple carbohydrates or complex carbohydrates. What's the difference? To find out everything you need to know about carbohydrates, we spoke with the experts, Dr. Julie Chen, an internal medicine physician with Kaiser Permanente in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and Lorraine Fai, a registered dietitian for the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. What's the difference between a simple carbohydrate and a complex carbohydrate? It's all about structure. A simple carbohydrate, or simple sugar, is a ring of carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen. These rings occur either on their own or in pairs. When a ring occurs on its own, it's called a monosaccharide. And when they are in pairs, they are called disaccharides. A few examples of these sugars include glucose, maltose, fructose, and lactose. A complex carbohydrate is when these rings form a long, linked chain. These chains are called oligosaccharides or polysaccharides. A few examples of complex carbohydrates include starches and dietary fibers. Since complex carbohydrates are longer, they take longer to digest and create more lasting energy than simple sugars. They also won't create sudden blood sugar spikes that can temporarily give you energy, but leave you feeling fatigued after a short period of time. Chen says, complex carbohydrates are considered better for your overall health than simple carbohydrates. They keep you feeling full, and unlike simple carbs, they won't give you those sudden blood sugar spikes. Phi adds, complex carbohydrates are higher in fiber and certain vitamins and minerals, whereas simple carbohydrates lack fiber and are generally nutrient-poor foods. She also explains, dietary fiber is important in controlling appetite and has added benefits of being good for our gut health and improving digestion and regulating blood sugar levels after meals. What are complex carbohydrate examples? A complex carbohydrate does not mean the yumminess gets taken away. Complex carbohydrates are some of the best foods. Both chen and Fai recommend whole grains, fruits, vegetables, beans, legumes, oats, and brown rice. Balance is key. To keep your meals balanced, include a healthy amount of protein and fats. They can slow down how quickly your body turns carbs into sugar. And if you have long breaks between meals, grab a healthy snack with about 10 to 15 grams of carbs along with some protein or a little bit of healthy fat, like half a cup of Greek yogurt with fresh berries. It's all about finding that balance, Chen emphasizes. Up next, six cool facts about swimming pools from InterestingFacts.com. Feeling the heat? Head to the pool for a dip? a splash, or to swim some laps, or just immerse yourself in these incredible facts about swimming pools. They might not cool you down, but they will give you something to ponder as you bask in all that beauty and chlorine. Number one, heated pools are old, really old. Think warm swimming pools are a modern invention? Think again. Gaius Massenus beat modern pool makers to it by about two millennia. The wealthy ancient Roman diplomat and patron of the arts championed luxurious baths heated underneath the floors all the way back in the first century BCE, leading to a boom in warm public baths that, as one historian writes, were hugely prodigal of fuel and finance. They became a must-have feature in luxurious Roman villas, then a common feature in public baths around the reign of Augustus. Number two. U.S. pools were originally designed to keep the masses clean. Boston's Cabot Street Bath was the nation's first indoor municipal pool. Founded in 1868, the pool was on the leading edge of what would become a boom in baths designed to help the working classes clean up. The short-lived facility, it was open for only eight years, was soon followed by municipal baths and pools all over the nation, especially in cities with growing immigrant populations whose tenement apartments didn't contain adequate bathing facilities. In New York, starting in 1870, river water filled floating, pool-like public baths that, according to one onlooker, were as filthy as floating sewers. Eventually, by about the mid-20th century, the city's river baths morphed into the indoor pools we know today, though the city does still have some seasonal outdoor pools. Number three, Arizona is pool heaven. With its dry, hot weather and its low building costs, Arizona is America's swimming pool hotspot. One recent survey found that a full 32.7 percent of homes in Phoenix have in-ground pools, beating out Miami and even Las Vegas for the most pools per capita. But there's a dark horse on the list of cities with the highest residential pool ownership, Buffalo, New York, where 8.3 percent of residences have pools. Portland, Oregon came in last in the survey, ranking even lower than cold cities like Milwaukee and Chicago. Number four, you can thank rowers for the modern swimsuit. Speaking of Portland, the city was home to the company that popularized today's modern swimsuit, Janssen, formerly known as the Portland Knitting Company. In 1913, a rower approached the company in search of something he could comfortably wear on his bottom half while rowing. Soon, the company had popularized swimming trunks and went on to popularize modern, slim silhouette suits for women, too. The company became so big that it had its own Oregon amusement park designed to encourage swimming. Number 5. This Pool Gave New Meaning to Religious About Swimming in 1931, Joseph Stalin's communist government blew up Moscow's landmark Christ the Savior Cathedral in order to build what eventually became the mother of all Soviet public works projects, the Palace of Soviets, intended to be a combination conference hall, administrative building. But the project never came to fruition, so the Soviets designed and built a massive pool on the site instead. Number 6. Swimming pools were the original skate parks. In the late 1970s, drought hit Southern California and prompted many to drain their pools. Their loss was skateboarding's gain. As a result, skating kicked and pushed its way into the mainstream as kids with boards flew around the interiors of all those emptied pools, legally or not, an activity known as bowl skating or pool skating. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker.